Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome again to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. My name is Don Payne. I'm glad to be your host for another conversation. And we've got a really intriguing guest with us this week. I'm eager for you to meet and hear from. Let me set it up this way. Uh, Paul's The Apostle Paul's call for the church to be of one mind in Philippians 2, 1 to 4 has probably never been more apt uh, than it is in these times, at least in this country. Uh, because in light of everything that currently divides the church in this country, it almost makes me long for some of the quote-unquote good old days where all that we had to fight about was what we then called the worship wars. <laughs> um, now, I know I'm romanticizing the past because we didn't think they were very good old days at that time, but uh, it kind of makes me long for them now. So I have no idea how many books have been written about worship and the worship wars, but the conversations, as I recall, were pretty intense, and in some case, in some places, probably continue to be intense. Uh, worship is is clearly at the heart of relating to God, so it shouldn't be any surprise that we take it so seriously. And it's equally tragic, I think, that something uh, that should unite us can so easily divide us or can otherwise lose its way. Anyway, I'm I'm just overjoyed whenever I come across a resource or a person who has has thought deeply about worship in a way that's genuinely theological, not merely cultural or experiential, but that that speaks theologically into the depths of human experience. So we are privileged this week in this episode to have as our guest Dr. Glenn Packiam. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Packiam in just a moment, but Glenn, welcome to Engage 360. Thank you, Don. Glad to be on with you, and I am glad the worship wars are over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope, but, but maybe right. they'll recycle. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Dr. Packiam is the Associate Senior Pastor of New Life Church in Colorado Springs, and he is the lead pastor of their downtown congregation. They're a multi-site mm-hmm. church these days. I don't know how, how many years or how long have you had multi-site? Well, New Life Downtown was our first kind of off-site congregation. That began in 2012, so nine years. It's been nine and a half years now that we've done this, and we do it a little bit like a parish model where there's live preaching and contextualized ministry at each congregation, so they're all a little bit different. It's not a video uh, piped-in message sort of thing, but but uh, very contextualized. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. And New Life, um, some of you will know about New Life. Others around in other parts of the country may not, but New Life is a pretty large church. I guess it might qualify. Uh, I don't know what the metrics are for a mega church, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's it really big. Yeah, yeah. It, it does, and it carries, you know, wh- whatever uh, the listener might think about a megachurch, I suppose you could, you know, it is large, it does have loud music, it does have exuberant preaching and all of that, but th- we're grateful. I mean, the, the truth is, Don, New Life has been through a, a, a lot of pain in its story. Yeah. Uh, late 2006, scandal of the founding senior pastor, new senior pastor comes in in 2007, 
And then 100 days into his time, there's a gunman that comes on the campus and uh, opens fire. Two teenage girls lose their lives. I mean, tragedy upon tragedy. Yeah. So here we are, uh, 14, 15 years later after both of those things, and we're just we're grateful to be uh, a healthy local church. That's I think that would be the, the scripture we would uh, aspire to the most, you know. Uh, mega or not, we want to be healthy and we want to be faithful, and we're grateful for ministry that's taking place there. Yeah, that, that's a good word um, because it, it, it's kind of remarkable, and I think uh, maybe a marker of God's grace that a church who's been through so much has rebounded and and is thriving yeah rather than continuing to spiral yeah, absolutely right and you know we're going to be talking today about worship i mean worship has been a big part of new life story from the, from day one and i would say because we've been a worshiping church it's one of the the the, the, the things that has anchored us uh, during those ups and downs and those storms and continues to anchor us even through this this season of the pandemic and all of that being a church that understands how to turn to god for hope or in, in places where you need hope uh, to come to worship that way. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got an interesting story. You hold a doctorate in theology and ministry from the University of Durham mm-hmm. in the UK. Mm-hmm. So you're Durham man. <laughs> I'm a Manchester man okay. myself, but you know. I like their football all, team, yeah. Uh, soccer yeah, team, well, right? I do too when they win. <laughs> uh, at least Man United, not yes, Man City. Yes, same, not, right, not much right. of a Man no, City no, fan, no, but. No. Um, I don't want to turn anybody off by that, but uh, you know, when I was going to school there, Man City was nobody. That's right. Um, that's another story. But uh, so you uh, you did your studies in Durham in theology and ministry. You are both a theologian and a worship leader and a songwriter, and got a less of the a, worship leading these days, more of the pastor preaching stuff. But okay. yeah, back in okay. my in my earlier years, yes. Okay. Uh, we're also really glad that you're an adjunct faculty member here at Denver Seminary in our Doctor of Ministry program. I'm grateful. I, I've loved my experience teaching at Denver Seminary. I look forward to it coming up next year. Yeah, yeah good. All right, let's talk about the books you've written. Now, I only have in front of me two of them, and you have quite a number of others. The one I... Well, why don't you just kind of <laughs> rattle off your books, well, okay? Tell, tell us a little bit about them. <laughs> the first one is called uh, Butterfly in Brazil, and that, that takes through you know the life of Nehemiah, sort of how your life can make a world of difference. It's written to young people to help them understand that even if you have big dreams, you got to start small and stay the course and that sort of thing. The second book is called Secondhand Jesus, and that really came out of my, my own processing of the scandal that happened at New Life and... and recognizing some of the rumors of God, as the message translation mm. puts it in, in the, at the end of the book of Job, where Job says, I've lived off of rumors of you, but now I have it firsthand. Yeah. So talk about that. Um, Lucky, the book, one of the books you have in front of you, is about the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really a kingdom vision of the gospel, how we are recipients of this good news and participants in it. Uh, the book after that was a thin one called Discover the Mystery of Faith, which is about resourcing from the great tradition of the church for worship, worship practices from the Lord's table to confession to psalm praying, um, basically stuff that the evangelical church has left in the attic, so to speak, but mm-hmm. that we can dust off and resource from. And then the uh, 2019, there was a book called Blessed, Broken, Given, which is that language of what Jesus does with bread, and using that to kind of provoke a sacramental imagination in us to say that this, these three words are how we are to understand our life in Christ— and the church's life in the world, blessed, broken, and given. So, uh, and then the one that we're talking about today is, is the only academic book I've written so far. Uh, it's called Worship in the World to Come, and that's a rewritten version of my dissertation work at Durham. I, I yeah. wondered about yeah, that. As yeah, I was yeah, looking yeah. through it, I thought that might be your, your dissertation. Now, you also have 
uh, one that is forthcoming, don't you? The Resilient Pastor? Yeah, that's right. Tell us about that. Yeah, that comes out in February of 22, and that was in partnership with Barna. Um, David Kinneman at at Barna approached me uh, a year and a half ago and said, would I partner with them to uh, write a book for pastors, for the challenges that pastors are facing in a changing world. Naively, I said yes, and then a month later, the pandemic began. You know, so talk about a changing world. Talk about a changing world, world. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, but it was wonderful to, to craft the research during 2020. So I outlined eight challenges, four for the pastor as an individual and four for the church, and then worked with their team to design research uh, or the, the, you know, the survey questions that they then sent out to hundreds of pastors. And then after getting some of that data back, I had some focus groups with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., three different focus groups where we talked through those challenges. So the book is not data-heavy, though. I don't want to intimidate people by that or people to be, to be you know, spooked by that. It's about 10% data. Really, it's 90% culling, trying to cull the wisdom of church history okay. and the scriptures and to say, how does that give us insight into this moment? Because, Don, I don't believe that they are truly unprecedented moments. I think because the church... Uh, has survived many storms, and Christ has been the head of the church for you know a couple thousand quite years a while. now. Yeah, now, quite a while. Yeah. And Paul says it this way in First Corinthians 15: Jesus is risen from the dead. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, knowing that your labor will not be in vain. So, we're trying to find the wisdom of in what ways has the church been here before, and in what ways can even the story of the church, maybe pre-Constantine, uh, shed some light for us in 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 our world today. Yeah, I'm glad you're doing that kind of work because. Um, you know, especially for many Americans who don't have a long historical memory, we tend to think that the moments we occupy in time are the first time that anybody has ever dealt with this yes. stuff, when really most everything we're dealing with is is a recycled version. There's some sense of it. I mean, we think about the church in Carthage after the, you know, the Donatist controversy, and then all of a sudden they're dealing with their own sort of epidemic or pandemic, and and the divisions of a divided church trying to survive a, a health crisis. I mean, listen, there are all kinds of parallels and ways that we can learn and glean from church history. So, yeah, here's yeah. to church history. Yeah. Plug, a plug for church history. Yes, yeah, good. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk uh, a bit today about your book. You mentioned this is a, a published version of your doctoral work, Worship and the World to Come. The sub- subtitle is Exploring Christian Hope in Contemporary Worship. And as I said in the intro, what really excites me about this is that it's a genuinely theological approach to worship. Mm. And you've obviously given, as some of your other book titles suggest, a, a lot of attention to worship in one way or another. And it may be, might be worth mentioning, if you don't mind, that um, you are in a cu- uh, curious position of being an ordained Anglican priest yes. serving in a non-Anglican, a non-liturgical, kind of a mainstream, a large mainstream evangelical church, mm-hmm. which is, I think, fascinating. Um, but I suspect that also um, that, that also brings for you, or you bring uh, a, a lot of that Anglican um, uh, devotion to worship, that Anglican reflection about worship, mm. into the way, into the culture and the climate of a non-liturgical church. Yeah, and, I, and I've had company along the way. I mean, Brady, our senior pastor, several of my colleagues at the church, we've all been on this journey together. And I'll tell you, part of the thing, Don, that we recognized is when you're, when you're at a church where the leader has had a very public moral failure, you don't just replace the leader. You have to explore what, what about the model needs to change. Okay. And in those early years for us, we began to realize, look, if you just insert another person onto the, pla- the same platform, you still, you're still possibly setting them up to fail again. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, sa- I'm not saying that every leader is just as susceptible or whatever. Everyone's got their own p- particular 
uh, things. But it's a good chance to examine the system that we're creating or the yeah. culture that we're creating. And I, when I shifted away from leading worship primarily, you know, with an instrument worship and song stuff and started preaching at a service, Sunday night service regularly in 2009, I realized, wait a minute, there's ego and vanity in my own heart. What, mm. what can we change about this? And I recognized that historical worship practices of the church had a way of decentering the individual or mm-hmm. decentering. Now, mm-hmm. the, there's an irony here, of course, because right up leading to the Reformation, you say, well, hang on a minute. The priest who was the only one who could say these things or only one who understood Latin, they sound like they're very much in the center. So again, there is an irony here. But for, for a good chunk of church history, the goal was for the Lord's table to be front and center in mm-hmm. the worship practices mm-hmm. and our songs and prayers and even the, the preaching of the word was meant to sort of surround that and flow in and out of that. And we began to realize that, look, during the sung portion or the musical portion, the band may get it right or they might get it wrong, as we'll talk about today, and the preacher might get it right or wrong. But when you get to the Lord's table, that's the moment where we kind of step out of the way and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So oh, yeah. this liturgical shape and uh, has has really influenced all, us at New Life in all of our services, where we all do weekly communion now, and we it's changed the way that we preach, uh, so that we preach toward the table where Christ is the hero, as opposed to now go and you know do try harder this week. It becomes real gospel centered preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so liturg- changing the liturgical shape can actually change the way that you preach. It can it change the gospel center of the church. It can make it more gospel-centered. And those are things that we've experienced at New Life over the last 10 or 12 years. Oh, that's exciting to hear. And, you know, you remind me of, of the fact that historically—well, let me say it differently. Uh, in a lot of contemporary conversations, when we talk about a worship leader, mm-hmm. we're talking about a musician— Correct. Yes. At yes. least in a lot of a lot yes. of ecclesial oh, settings, we're talking yeah. about a musician. When we talk about worship. We're talking about the sung portion. Mm-hmm. But historically, if um, if somebody talked about the worship leader, they were talking about the pastor. Yes. yes. The pastor was the one who led the people of God in worship. Yes. And there were sung portions. There were prayerful portions. There were preaching portions. But it was all worship, mm-hmm. and the pastor led worship. Mm-hmm. So these designated and specialized roles are really a fairly fairly modern phenomenon. Is that... Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's absolutely right. And Lester Ruth at Duke uh, Divinity, he's done some great historical work on kind of tracking the roots of this movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, one one stream that gets a lot of attention is sort of the Jesus movement stuff that, you know, where contemporary music comes out of. But actually, uh, Lester argues that there's this latter rain Pentecostal movement that is a stronger uh, tributary, if you will, that kind of contributes to our, our our modern worship stream. But yes, you're right. We we now use the term worship leader synonymously with the music leader or the song leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what led you to re- do this research and write this book originally? Well, as you will know, Don, when people are doing doctoral work and you're trying to make an original contribution to the field, they always say, pick a field you know well because you're going to be immersed in it, you know. And I thought, well, I've spent many years leading worship, writing songs, and, and uh, you know, doing that sort of thing. So I know that world. But I also know that you can't just evaluate worship generically. Like, you can't say, is modern worship theologically good or bad? Is it malforming us? Or okay. you, know, you have to be more specific than that. And so I, I, I decided that the angle of theology, or the aspect of theology that I uh, had begun to recognize had a greater importance than I had given it in the past— was eschatology, the, the aspect of Christian hope. And I personally, in my own pastoral work, began to recognize how the vision of new creation and of resurrection 
is such a compelling vision that it actually helps to work backwards and make more sense of, say, the church's mission, or even the way we talk about salvation, or the theology of the kingdom. And, uh, and it goes actually all the way back to our theology of creation, you know? So there's a sense in which the end informs the beginning and yep. everything in the middle, right? So I started to think about how I could maybe uh, query <laughs> worship and hope. Uh, how does worship form our hope? How are we singing about hope in our worship? And so in order to do this, and, and the kind of um, work that they taught us to do at Durham is this sort of, um, you're blending sociological or qualitative research with theological reflection. All right. And that, to me, was something that's not done enough with worship studies. A lot of times what worship studies ends up doing is saying, hey, this is what historical theology says Christian worship is, or this is what biblical theology says biblical worship is, and then now we just got to apply it. So it's basically applied theology. Instead, what I was trying to do and what we were encouraged to do is to say, study what's actually going on when the people of God come together in worship, and look at this sort of theology in action, if you will, and parse out from there what's good, what's bad, what's missing in that. So you still have a standard. you got to have a standard. And in, 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 in my work, you know, we, I use like Helen Cameron's four voices of theology, mm-hmm. where there's a normative voice and a formal voice, and then you have the operant and the espoused. I, I mean, those are technical terms, but the idea is, what do people say they believe about hope? Uh, what should they say that they believe about hope by, by formal theological voices or even the creeds? But then, what actually is the underlying theology of hope that's at work in the songs that they're singing and in the way that they come to worship? So I designed the research to analyze songs on the one hand, and then services on the other hand. So there were there were songs that I I, I asked worship leaders, and I had access to twenty five thousand worship leaders on a uh, distribution list from Integrity Music, and they uh, I got a thousand responses out of that, and. Uh, there was lots of different questions, but one of the questions was, name a song that, that brings you hope, and then name a song that brings your church hope. And I would cro- cross-reference those two answers and came up with a top you know, eight or nine songs. And then I began to analyze those songs. What imagery do they use? What pronouns and nouns uh, do they use? Uh, what, what's the verb tense? Are we singing about the past, the present, the future? So then after analyzing the songs, then I went and, and spent time with two local churches, one in Denver and one in Dallas, uh, two large churches, and had uh, per, you know observed their services, interviewed the pastors, did folk, uh, a number of focus group meetings with people at those churches to talk about how people experience hope. So I'll just pause there. That's kind of the setup um, for the book. It was, it was driven by trying to get under this question a bit more of, is worship forming us and in what way? Okay. Wow. We're... Where my mind was going when you were describing that was uh, generations ago. Mm. Uh, so I'm thinking about autobiographically. Okay, so uh, I grew up in a kind of an independent Baptist movement in West Texas, and so the old gospel hymns. And I can remember, though I didn't have a language for it at the time, uh, I can remember that many of the songs we sang were very eschatological. Yeah. In the sweet by and by, yeah, yeah, when yeah. we meet on that yeah. beautiful shore, you know, we're always yes, looking forward. Yes. And and a lot of those songs probably came out of uh, some some degree of just hardship in people's lives, yes. where they're always looking forward. But then, even more intensely, you think about the hymnody of enslaved peoples. That's it. That's right? it. Deeply, I think, deeply eschatological. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I go into that in the book because what I discovered about these songs that worship leaders today said were songs of hope, 
is they, they were not, so again, this is where getting a specific theological question really helps. They were not bad songs theologically in a general sense, but yeah. when, as songs of hope, they were really lacking some things. And they, I- I- in my analysis of them, they were overly focused on the present tense. It was about the here and now. Okay. Um, they were overly focused on what's happening close to me, the proximate space. And they, they had a disproportionate, like 90% of the pronouns were singular personal pronouns, I, me's, and my's, you know. And, and when I think about that, again, that's not automatically bad, but put it, com- compare it to some other things. And I did. Yeah, you look at the patterns that that's, that represents. That's right. That's right. And I, I compare it to the slave spirituals, many of the slave spirituals. And there's this deep longing for something in the future, something that is yet to come. And just c- contrast that with our preoccupation with the present. You're here now. You're speaking now. You're doing this now. So one of the things I, I say in the book is the gift of the charismatic movement is the expectation of encounter. That's a good thing. But the, trick, the, trap, the trap with that is that you can be so preoccupied with the present that you forget that the fullness of what God is going to do is yet to come. There's a not yetness to the kingdom, yeah. you know? And and this is the you know the painful sort of question I raise, and I can't answer this conclusively, but the question I raise is, is singing about the present tense the luxury of privileged people? You know, people who are not in pain, people who are not suffering. I was just going to ask you about that. How how do you how does um, I don't have a really great way of asking mm-hmm. this. I'm thinking on the fly here, but how does um, a hymnody of hope? Mm-hmm. Uh, mean anything or actually shape the life of well-resourced, if not affluent people. But, well, that's who, it. Who, not, I mean, who, who I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm not wondering whether I'm going to have a meal that's tonight. Right. That's right. It, it's, it's interesting because, you know, even the specific imagery of the Red Sea parting, there's a well-known contemporary song that places that imagery either in the past tense or present tense. You split the sea so I can walk right in. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love that song. It's a powerful song. I've had moments with God through that song. But purely through this lens of, that we're, we're talking about here, when the slave spirituals talk about crossing the Red Sea, it's yet to come. It's something that, because we're not on the other side of this. You know, we're still uh, in Egypt. And I think for us, we have to be mindful that so many of our songs, like so much of our theology, is shaped by our context and our context of affluence. Yeah. 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 And which makes, now, perhaps this makes eschatology or the... The, for, for those who don't use that word a lot, you know, the the theology of things to come, yeah. how how yeah. God is going yeah. to resolve yeah. and reconcile all things in the future, that can make that into either just a theological curiosity for people who kind of ha- <laughs> happen to have that kind of curiosity, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, a bucket of abstractions. There's no urgency to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so okay, so we've been talking about time, but there's also this dimension of space. So when is the hope that Christians have been promised, but also where is this thing, this hope that Christians have been promised? Mm-hmm. And one, you know, while the songs that were about the future have, there's something good about it. They're they're at least pointing us forward. The difficulty with those songs is they point upward to sort of another place, that wherever God's action is going to be, it's not here, it's there. And so I've got to be lifted in the air to go meet him, or I'll fly away, or that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and 
in the book, I have to do, I, I had to construct different models of hope. So there's a cognitive, purely sort of, you know, from a human perspective, cognition, what is hope? Uh, from an emotional perspective, what is hope? But when I get to constructing a, a theological model of hope, the early Christians, there's, a, there's a, obviously some disagreement on the details, but the overwhelming um, consensus was what we're hoping for is bodily resurrection and new creation. And of course, that's there in the New Testament itself. And that's the stuff that is just a glaring gap in our songs. We're not singing, or the songs that come to mind for these worship leaders. I'm not saying these songs don't exist. I think there's great artists who are doing that work. Unfortunately, it hasn't infiltrated the mainstream of of Christian worship music. So that these worship leaders, when they're naming songs of hope, they're not naming songs that speak about resurrection or new creation. Interesting. Yeah, heaven... Yes, or yes. or what many would think of as the disembodied state uh-huh. seems uh, often to appear as that um, that that focal point yes. of the hope. Yes, but biblically, um, it's the resurrection. Yes, it's not the interim state. It's the resurrection. Yes, yes. Now, so here's the fascinating thing about the research. So that the songs is one are you know one piece. When I started spending time with people who are going to church and worshiping, and I couldn't ask them questions like, do you experience hope in church? That's objection, Your Honor, leading the witness. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, had to, I had to get at it a little bit sideways and say, uh, you know, have you ever gone to church feeling one way and, and leaving in a, you know, feeling a different way or experiencing something different? And every, overwhelmingly people describe that. And as I spent more and more time with this focus group, we had, we had three or four different meetings, they would, they would describe painful situations in their marriage, difficult medical diagnosis, estranged relationships with their adult children. I mean, all kinds of painful things. And they said, but every time I came to church, something happened. God met me. I began to believe hmm. that, that he was sovereign. Or, you know. So one church that I spent time with, it's a Presbyterian church, they talked about elements like the silence or the candles or the prayer time or even the fellowship time and the sovereignty of God. The other church was was loud, uh, you know, charismatic, and they would talk about the energy in the room and the the visual of seeing other people worshiping, and they said that really lifted me up. And 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 then I would ask them, well, what happened on Monday? You know, what happens on Tuesday? And inevitably, they all said, oh yeah, yeah, it does fade. And I said, well, what, what do you do in those moments? Well, I just start praying again, or I, I pick up the phone, call a friend, or I, I turn on the music again. So some of those elements call a friend. Well, that's the saints. That's why we gather with one another. Um, I began to pray. Well, that's why we pray at church. I began to listen to music again. Well, that's why we have music. And, you know, I began to read the Bible. That's why there's preaching in church. So they're kind of rehearsing the same elements that they have in gathered worship. Is that That's exactly it. The the gathered worship has all of those elements, those elements arguably that are there in Acts 2.42 or Ephesians 5.18 through 21. You know, all of those, but they're rehearsing it again personally. And what it's doing is it's it's reigniting that hope again. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I, let's, let's explore a little bit further this connection between worship and hope. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when I think about uh, the connections that might be out there most, um, uh, most forefront in people's minds between worship and some theological theme, some doctrine, um, I'm, I'm guessing here, mm-hmm. but, you know, worship, joy. Yeah, sure. Uh, worship, faithfulness. Uh-huh. Worship, obedience. Yeah. I, but... The, the connection between worship and hope, which you've been mm. already exploring, that's probably not a connection that is right on the tip of most Christians' tongues, I don't think. No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right, Don. And 
it's strange that it isn't because it would have been for the early Christians, right? You know, so they, they, they made their day of worship the day of resurrection. Why? Because they needed to remember resurrection. Uh, they sang in prison cells at midnight. How? Because they believed that was not the end of the story, you know. So, so hope is in, and, and then I think about the phrase that liturgically gets incorporated into Christian worship very early on. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. This m- memorial acclamation has a future dimension to it. And if even the Lord's table is kind of meant to be the centerpiece of Christian worship, even that is part remembrance, past tense, part encounter, present tense, by the Spirit, and part anticipation, you know, this, this future sense of hope. So I think if the Lord's table itself becomes a paradigm for Christian worship, we would say, wait a minute, we need remembrance, encounter, and hope, anticipation in our worship. Which means you're not merely uh, talking about songs. That's right. You're talking when so when we talk about worship, you're not only talking about what we sing and how we sing, you're talking about the entire experience of worship. Exactly right. right. And in fact, it puts too great of a burden on songwriters. Now, I don't want to let songwriters off the hook and I speak to them as my my own brothers and sisters. Uh, we can and should write better songs, but I could say we can and should preach better sermons, but even so, I don't want to put the burden solely on the songwriter or okay. solely on the preacher because you're absolutely right, Don. The whole service must be designed in such a way that we are rehearsing these gospel movements that contain remembrance, encounter, and anticipation. And I, I will often encourage young uh, worship leaders or even pastors as they think about their service, you don't have to use the language of the liturgy. I'm less concerned if you take the prayer book and pray that prayer. Uh, but I would encourage you to learn from the logic of the liturgy. There's a shape to this thing uh, that is meant to influence our, our worship planning, and too often in the evangelical church, we're planning a service like we're planning a variety show, you know, which is what mm. elements will work here, as opposed to saying, what is going to help people go on this journey and remember that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again? I appreciate you saying that because you can say that where I can't as easily. I mean, they people expect you know kind of snarky comments like that from from an academic, okay? But you're a pastor, so you can say that. Yes, you know that we plan it like we're planning a, a, a variety, variety show. show. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that kind of raises a, another question. Um, you are ordained in a liturgical tradition, and you have clearly drawn mm-hmm. a lot, drawn very thoughtfully, drawn very heavily upon the theology of of the liturgical traditions, liturgical worship tends to have an overtly theological shape, an overtly theological contours to it, where uh, many less formal, non-liturgical styles, I mean, there's always a liturgy, but it's more more implicit, it's it's not as overt. Um, what, What would be or what is your vision for genuinely theologically driven worship, even in non-liturgical settings? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, some of the, in addition to some of the stuff I've, I've mentioned, I think one of the things we have to be mindful of is we subconsciously are operating out of a paradigm for why we worship together. And in the book, I, it's a bit of table setting, but I explore historically what has shaped our, our understanding of why what we're trying to accomplish in the gathering. And, and you kind of have the one paradigm that's the mission paradigm. We're, we're gathering together so that we can reach more people and tell more people about Jesus. Well, 
that really comes from the kind of second great awakening sort of stuff in America anyway, you know, where we the, the liturgical church uh, shape of churches sh- changed after the second great awakening. Melanie Ross at Yale has done work on this where there was this fourfold shape of, you know, the gathering, the word, the table, the sending. That's yeah. the liturgical shape. Well, at these these revivals, Finney's new methods were song, sermon, altar call, you know, or decision mode. And I'm not I'm not you know, saying that that's a bad thing. It was very effective. But churches began to adopt the sort of tent meeting. That became the norm. That, that became the norm. That became the tent me- The tent meeting liturgy became our norm. And the, the, the trick with that is it is built on this underlying pre- premise that the church service is about reaching the lost or about culminating toward a decision moment. And I think that's insufficient. You can't just operate uh, operate out of the mission paradigm. The other paradigm, and maybe liturgical churches uh, operate under this one, is its formation. That every time we gather, we're supposed to be formed. This is James K.A. Smith, Desiring the Kingdom, or You Are What You Love. So the liturgies are all about forming us. Well, the trouble with that is we all know you can have perfect liturgies and poorly discipled Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, So that, yeah, that's, it's not quite a one-to-one. And then the other, you know, the charismatic kind of stream contributed this idea that, well, we just gather together to, to meet with God. And when I worked with Barna, actually, in this new research about why people come to church, uh, the number one reason is, oh, to, to meet with God. So that's a good thing, but on its own, it's not enough. So what I suggest to people is all three paradigms are biblical, but they have to be held in a kind of generative tension with each other. Okay. And so there's some discernment work to do as a pastor to say, are we is our service being influenced by missional or mission formation and encounter and in in what ways do we when do we need to lean toward one more than the other maybe in certain seasons maybe in the life of a church uh, for us as our church we realized we'd come out of mission and encounter for decades but we didn't have formation so for us incorporating some of these liturgical elements weekly communion that was a way of saying hey when we call people to worship together it's not simply to so that people can get saved or, and not simply so we can have an experience or an encounter with God but also so that we can be properly formed so let's think a bit more carefully about the shape and, and on, on but for other churches they might say we got the shape down <laughs> but we we've, we've forgotten that like Annie Dillard said they should hand out crash helmets and seat belts at a church service they, because yeah. we're about to meet the living God, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, you know, if people listening to this are thinking, uh, especially maybe worship leaders, pastors are thinking, yeah, I'd love to um, begin to orient or reorient our worship more along these lines, but, you know, we're not going to throw a hand grenade in there and just yeah. blow everything yeah. up and start over. Yeah. We're not going to do a scrape and rebuild. What are maybe a couple of things you'd suggest as first steps for people to move move in the yeah. directions that you've been well, I describing. Rec- I recognize the listener will be at a different place in terms of organizational influence, how much power they have to change sure. something. So if you're a worship leader, songwriter, you know, maybe you could start to, to think about um, do an audit of the songs that you're choosing for the people. I have a friend, Aaron Keyes. He leads a, a school of worship called 10,000 Fathers and Mothers based out of our, our church in, in Colorado Springs. And, and he encourages worship leaders to do an, a massive spreadsheet audit of your worship songs and look at the lyrics and ask, how many of these are about God? How many of these are about us? How many of these are about the future? How many, you know, I did some of that audit type work with the verbs. A worship leader could do that. And and tilt the catalog that you're pulling from. Tilt that a little bit more to say, gosh, we're all about the present tense. We don't have anything about the resurrection or new creation. Okay, we'll work on that. Same thing for a preacher. If you're a preacher listening to this, think about how often you refer to the end of the story. 
uh, does the end of the story ever inform our ethics or our mission or our life in God today, you know? Um, so there are ways, Eugene Peterson used to call it the invisible structure. There's an invisible structure to this salvation history, and we are often preaching at one point in it, and that's perfectly fine. You can't cover the whole drama in one sermon. But how often do you sort of point people, you know, one day, one day, one day? And then I would say, think about one or two elements you could test out in there. You know, maybe uh, on a particular Sunday you have people stand and say the Nicene Creed. Uh, we've we've adopted that as our statement of faith. Even though we're a non-denominational church, we don't have a unique statement of faith. We have the Nicene Creed, and it's painted all over the walls in our mm-hmm. building, and we say it in worship probably once a month or so. And you get to that last line, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Like, oh, hello, there it is. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, thanks for that. Okay, so this is kind of backward, but yeah. um, because I normally would ask this early on in a conversation, but just a little bit about your own mm. story, your own journey, and uh, how do you set this work in the context of your own journey as a, yeah. as a person, as a Christian, as a yeah. pastor? Yeah, thanks, Tell us about Don. Glenn Packing. <laughs> I'm from Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia. My parents, uh, you know, they met at the University of Singapore. My mom was a third-generation Anglican, I think. My dad was Hindu. He converted uh, before marrying my mom. But I, my sister and I grew up in a Christian home, and specifically an Anglican home. We went to an Anglican church in Malaysia. Uh, and then, my, so this is what's great about it, Anglican church, they started getting invited to a Bible study midweek led by a Baptist pastor, and then they got introduced. Amen. To the, amen. And then they got introduced <laughs> to the gifts of the Spirit at some revival meeting, and they eventually left uh, that Anglican church and went to a, uh, you, you know, different uh, sort of Pentecostalist sort of church. But I, I've been shaped by all, all of those streams, each of those streams, the sacramental, the the biblical, and the uh, you know Pentecostal, if you will. And so it plays a big part of my story. We moved to the States once when I was 10. My parents went to Bible college in Portland, Oregon. I, we lived there for three years, went back to Malaysia. I came back to, uh, on my own. I went to a charismatic uh, university. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I know the power of God in worship when Christians gather together in worship. And one of the things I was really happy about with this research is you know, in my, some of my earlier work, Discover the Mystery of Faith, especially, I was really emphasizing to, to my own tribe, hey, resource from the church tradition here. Pull this at the liturgical shape. But when I started doing this research, what I realized was even though our songs were less than uh, hope-filled, or they were not robust in their eschatology, yet God was kind enough to meet with people in worship. From a sociological perspective, the text of a ritual is not the same thing as the performance of a ritual. Those are mm-hmm. two different things, yeah, right? right. And, and in Christian worship, how much more is that true because of the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit always makes worship more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, you know, if God only <laughs> met us when we got it all right, oh, man. we'd all be out in the oh, woods, right? Over. I mean, yeah, it's, it's over. over. It's over. So I'm so grateful. And so I felt like even in doing this work, this book has... Yes, that journey of, okay, we need to be more robust in our theology of hope, and it it tracks my own discovery of of a richer theology of hope. But at the end, the the, the final piece of the book is the Holy Spirit is the wild card here, you know? Um, The uh, uh, the psychologist Charles Snyder describes hope as the intersection of agency and pathway. When humans feel like they can and they have a path to do it, and they're, you know, willpower and waypower is what he calls it. Well, what happens in worship? We transfer agency upward to God, and we say, Lord, great are you, Lord. You are the mighty fortress. You're the one who can do it. 
And then he says, yeah, and by my spirit, you can go out into the world and, and, and live this. So we're not transferring agency upward and then becoming passive. We get agency returned to us by the Holy Spirit, and then we, we entrust the path to the Lord. So there's a real reason why people, why Christians experience hope in worship, and that real reason is the active power of the Spirit of God among the church. Mm, gosh, I love this. I'm just I'm having a moment here. <laughs> yeah, part, partly, Glenn, because I, I I love it when people can can talk about the 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 realities of of life in the body of Christ, life in the church, life on the street, so to speak, um, but from a, a deeply and a thoughtfully theological perspective. And I really appreciate that. That's very yeah. Kind thank, thanks for all thank your you. gosh. Yeah. Thanks for all your work on this. Well, we could. We could keep going on this conversation for a while, but I think we're going to have to land the plane here. Um, so, Glenn, thanks. Dr. Thank you. Dr. Glenn Packiam. And uh, hopefully we can have another conversation about all this. Thank you so much, Don. What a delight. What an honor to talk to you. This has been a treat. So, friends, again, this is Engage 360. And as uh, always, want to give a deep thanks to, to our communications staff, Andrea Wayand and Rochelle Smith, for all they do to make this happen. Let me remind you, uh, if you would be so kind uh, to get on your favorite platform and leave us a rating or a review, that would genuinely help us. And if you've got questions or comments, you can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. Uh, check out our website. You can get all of our past episodes, and you can also access full text transcripts of every episode from the Denver Seminary website. That's denverseminary.edu. And you'll also find there, in addition to many other resources about our degree programs and, and other things, you'll find uh, mention of some good webinars we have coming up. Dr. Packing is going to be on one of them on emotional intelligence. Please check out those things because we want these resources to benefit you. Please uh, pray for us here at Denver Seminary. And if you've got people looking for a great theological education, uh, send them our way, please. So till next time, take care. Thanks.